story was told of a pastor who was sailing for Europe many years ago on a great transatlantic ocean liner. And when he went on board, he found that there was another passenger who was scheduled to stay in the same room as him. He would be sharing a cabin with another man. And so after going to see what the room looked like, he came up up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he never availed himself of that privilege, but he had been to the cabin and he had met the man who was to occupy the other berth. Judging from his appearance, he was afraid that he might not be a trustworthy person. The purser accepted the responsibility of the valuables and remarked, It's all right, Pastor. I'll be very glad to take care of these items for you. The other man has been up here and left his for the same reason. (laughs) Sometimes judgment can kind of stab you in the back. It can bite you. Is all judgment bad? Is all accountability and uh, evaluation a bad thing? Well, not necessarily so, but there's a time and place for it. So far in the book of Zephaniah, the prophet announces that Judah, the southern kingdom, will be judged in the near future, and then also it'll be judged in the distant future as well. But God is just, and all the nations and all the peoples will one day be accountable to the one true God. In fact, last week, we learned that Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Ethiopia and Assyria would also be judged at a future time. But all of this judgment, all of this evaluation, all of this possible condemnation can be perfectly avoided. God has provided a way out. It can be avoided. Last week we learned that humility, seeking after the Lord and his righteousness, are the antidote to a negative judgment. In chapter 3, Zephaniah pivots back to judgment at home. And so now we're in the last section of the book of Zephaniah. We just have a couple weeks left in this short prophecy. In chapter 3, Zephaniah pivots back to judgment at home. He had just been communicating to the reader and the listener about judgment that will take place to these foreign nations. But now he pulls back and he does this all through the book. He looks at the big picture and then he zeroes in on Judah, the southern kingdom, the other two tribes of Israel. He pivots back to judgment at home. So let's look at verses 1 through 5 of Zephaniah chapter 3. It says this, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He he does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. Now, the city technically is not named. It could possibly be any city. In fact, he had just talked about the city of Nineveh in the late part of chapter 2. 
city of Nineveh, which was the capital city, a citadel, a powerful fortress, the capital of the kingdom of Assyria, and that it will turn into a desolate ruin one day. But he shifts gears, and he seems like he's talking about a different place, but nonetheless, he stays on the idea of a particular city. Most commentators say, and I agree with them, that he's talking now about the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. It is not named, but it is most likely Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem like in the 7th century before the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What's it like? Well, here's a description of it for us. There is oppression. There is a rebellious attitude. There's They receive no correction. Every man and woman did what they wanted to do. They're not close to God. They're unresponsive to the true prophets, and they love to listen to the false prophets, the men who would teach and tell them what they wanted to hear, the ones that soothed them, the ones that agreed with their pagan-like attitude and behavior. So they were unresponsive to the true prophets. They were unteachable. They had no trust in God. They didn't even seek after God. They were not close to God at all. They did not draw near to the God that they claimed to worship, Yahweh, the God of the covenant. They had terrible leadership. He has four levels of leadership that he notes here, officials, rulers, prophets, and priests. The officials are most likely the royalty, the princes, and the court of the king. The rulers are most likely kind of the middle-level leaders, the bureaucracy, the judges, the magistrates, and so on. The prophets were definitely the false teachers. They were not the true ones because the true ones were not received well at all. There were the priests as well, those who used the temple not for the worship and adoration of the one true God, these priests who served in the temple, in the temple complex, and they, they used the sacrificial system for their own personal purposes. They probably made money off of it. Its original intention was to be a conduit between the true God and the people who would communicate through the temple system and the priests who would use the, use the Urim and the Thummim to communicate answers through the priests that the leadership of the nation had. There was none of that. They didn't seek after God. They didn't care what God believed. They didn't care what God told them. They would do life the way they wanted to do it. What arrogance, what foolishness, what a lack of wisdom that you would not tap into the one who created you and sustains you. What insanity. Nonetheless, human pride does that. It does that to people and nations alike. They were greedy, they were powerful, they were arrogant, they were profane, they were corrupt. But Zephaniah maintains that all during this time, God did not change one bit. He's still the God of justice, and he was not afraid to implement it at a future point in time. At the appropriate time, he would most certainly use his right to judge properly. God is righteous, but Jerusalem is not. Judgment, though, as he now narrows the scope of his communication. I'm not talking about all these other nations now. I'm not talking about Israel to the north. I'm not talking about even Judah. I'm just talking about the capital city of Jerusalem, that judgment begins at home. So accountability begins there too. 
Zephaniah and all the true prophets attempted to do this again and again and again with very different writing styles. You can see here that Zephaniah was one who did not, he just went right to the point, cut to the chase. He's very graphic language here. He says their officials are like roaring lions and their rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. He was not a more flowery, flowery writer like maybe Micah or Joel was. He just cut to the chase. He got to the point and used very graphic, almost violent language frequently. So the prophets were all different, but yet they were all colleagues. They all had the same basic message, but they communicated to different peoples. They communicated um, in different ways using their own writing style, hoping that some people would respond to their particular style. And some people did, but the majority, unfortunately, did not because by this time, the northern kingdom was already swallowed up. They had been swallowed up about roughly 90 years before by Zargon II of Assyria. And now the same thing was going to happen to the southern kingdom, particularly the capital city of Jerusalem was about to be swallowed up by the hordes of Babylonians who would come from the east and then take the people and transport them back to be their slaves. Zephaniah and all the true prophets attempted to communicate this information to the people, but most of them didn't listen. But here he was, he was narrowing his scope, his target audience, the people who he was communicating to. Here's the principle that you and I can respond to. We are expected to hold one another accountable because we will all be judged. That was true in 600 B.C. It's also true in 2024. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, the people group was Israel. But here, in 2024, we could take that same principle and apply it also to the church. In fact, we see it reflected in the New Testament. In particular, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the Apostle Paul is writing to the most unhealthy church of the first century, the church at Corinth. They had a lot of problems. And this is what he told them, among many things. He said, what have, for what I have to do, for what have I to do with judging those who are the outside, who are outside of the church? Do you not judge those who are inside? It's a question, and the answer begs a positive response. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. What's the context? Well, we look at the verses right before there, but Paul's main point here is he's saying, don't judge those outside the church because their identity is not in Christ, and so therefore they should not be expected to live like Christians. In fact, they don't even have the equipment it takes to live like Christians because the Holy Spirit does not indwell them. They have not been transformed. Their identity is still who they once were. So they should be living down to who they are and not up to who they are in Christ simply because they're not in Christ, but we are. And so the previous verses, this is what Paul writes about the church, home, the house of God, that Peter calls it, which is where judgment begins. He says this about this person who was involved in sexual immorality and was proud about it. In fact, The sexual immorality was with a family member, too. And this is what Paul writes about this problem in the church. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean 
with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world because there's so many of them. They're not Christians, and so that's who they are. And so they need to hear the gospel. That's what they need. So you can't judge them because they're not judgeable yet. God will take care of that. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now, let me get into the weeds just for a minute, and I promise I'll pull back out because in most English translations, that fifth line up says to keep company with anyone who is a so-called brother, but the term so-called is not in the original language. And so this is the New King James, which is the most accurate translation for this particular verse anyway. I'm kind of still a 1984 NIV fan. But nonetheless, New King James is right on the money with this translation because he's talking about Christians, not causing to doubt someone's salvation. This person is clearly a brother. They have a testimony that they place their faith in Christ alone. And so therefore, we need to hold them accountable because they're living like pagans. And that's not who they are anymore. So don't live down to who you once were. Live up to who you are now in Christ. And so he's communicating that it is proper for us to evaluate and even confront, do something about a believer who's in a sexually immoral relationship or a whole host of other issues as well. And so um, what do we do with someone who is a believer, but yet is in an immoral relationship. Well, we confront them. I'll get more into that. But even just a few weeks ago, I had a situation with a, some people who are not believers. And I, I, they don't go to this church, but they're not believers. I don't think they go to any church. And there was immorality. And I dealt with that in a totally different way than I would with believers. Thankfully, it got all cleared up, and both couples repented of their sin. <laughs> they didn't trust in Christ, but yet they got out of it and went back to their spouses, and it turned out well. But I dealt with that in a totally different way than I would with believers who are involved in immorality. And so what do we do with this when someone who has sinned? Well, Matthew 18 gives us almost like a formula. It tells us how to interact with other people who are not making good choices, to put it nicely. And so this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So let's just camp out on that for a minute. And so this is probably one of the top ten most misused ideas in the local church. I feel like I could say this every week and it wouldn't be enough. (laughs) That if someone hurts you or someone does something against you, Don't go and tell everybody else except that person. It's just the opposite. Go directly to that person. Put your complaint into words. Use a personal approach. Don't use email or text. I've tried to resolve conflict through texts and emails. It does not work. It only makes the situation worse. But use a personal approach. Don't tell everyone else first. Just tell that one person. And if you confront and they agree with me, you've processed the grievance. In fact, Jesus says, if he hears you, you will have gained your brother. But then there's a recourse because if he or she does not listen to you and they remain steadfast in their attitude, then 
take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 19.15. And so if you take some a small group with you, then you can, other people will see the attitude, and maybe that will also convince the person of their wrongdoing toward you, and then they will reconcile. But if you get to this point, there's also kind of a release valve because you're compelled to ask yourself a question like this. Is my case really so serious that I want to get one, two, or three other people involved, seriously, um, serious or mature people, presumably, that I want to get other people involved to go with me, or am I rather making a mountain out of a molehill? Should I just forgive and drop it? Or do I need to continue to press the case? You have an option either way. It's up to you how you want to handle it. But then there's a third level as well. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And in the Bear Creek Bible Church's history, we've done this a couple times, where the person remains steadfast in their determination to continue in their sin, and they were a member and so, therefore, we had a congregational vote to remove that person from membership. And um, don't like doing that. But we've had other cases that go to the first or second level, and the issue is resolved. Why is this so important? Well, because the world is continually calling us hypocrites. So let's stop being hypocrites. Let's do some self-maintenance on ourselves. Judgment begins in the family of God. And that doesn't mean we're condemning everybody left and right. It just means that we're dealing with this sin that is frequently very public. What are other issues apart from immorality that we should respond to? Well, if you do a survey of the New Testament real quick, that we're instructed to deal with idleness. Those who just refuse to work, they need to be confronted. People who are causing division in the body as well. Titus chapter 3 deals with that. And, of course, the issue that we use as an illustration, immorality, and the word there in the Greek is pornea, where we get pornography from. It's a very broad term. It's not just fornication or adultery. It's any type of sexual immorality, including the use of pornography. These are things that need to be confronted because sin ultimately leads to destruction and death. It leads to destruction of relationships in that own person than that person's soul and their lack of effectiveness in growing as a Christian. So we've got to deal with it in order to maintain a healthy body. And that is the tone of it all. The ultimate goal in confrontation is not condemnation, but reconciliation. I've been in conflict with people before, being a pastor for about 31 years at this church and several years at the previous church. Believe me, I've been in a lot of conflict. And frequently, um, it doesn't end well, but sometimes it ends really well till you're actually better friends than you were before. And that's a beautiful thing. That's the way it's supposed to be. I've seen this work well, and I've seen it work poorly. Sometimes church discipline is used inappropriately, but there's a process outlined in our bylaws, and we've actually used it several times. Most of the time, people repent. The purpose, again, is reconciliation, not condemnation. It is purity and the unity of the church. It needs to be handled in the most gracious way possible. 
And so accountability begins with the family of God. But Zephaniah reminds us that the nations will be judged. And he repeats this warning again. So he starts off just talking about the city of Jerusalem. But then he kind of broadens the scope once again as we look at verses 6 through 8. Look what he says there. He says, I have cut off nations. Their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No one will be left. No one at all. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Wow, that is some powerful language. And that will be a near future event from Zephaniah's perspective. But it will also be a far future event that is even from our time perspective, future tense. The nations will be demolished, deserted, and destroyed. And it's not for a lack of many, many warnings issued in various ways. Judah had recently seen the dispersal of the northern ten tribes by Assyria. Just within 90 years of when Zephaniah wrote this. Maybe even fewer than 90 years. But God always provides a pathway of survival. Both nations and people have to take it. So what do we do with this? Which is a question that you should always be asking when you hear a sermon, when you hear a Sunday school or calibrate lesson, when you hear a flock group. It's not just for academic, an academic experience. God's word is also for a very practical here and now experience that we've got to be more than hearers of the word, but be doers of the word also. So what in the world do we do with this information? Well, it could be this principle that we see portrayed by Zephaniah in those verses. Eventually, for us, even for from our perspective in future time, the whole world will be held to account. So what should we do about it? Get into our bunkers? <laughs> to the bunkers, everyone. We'll get into a holy huddle and not care about the rest of the world. No. That's not what Jesus told us to do. He said, make disciples of all nations. Told us to communicate the gospel to all the nations so that way they will be learners and followers of his as well as you are. We're called to influence. We're called to be reconcilers. We're called to be ambassadors of Christ. To represent him, the highest possible authority that is your destiny i'm not telling you that but the word of god is that is my destiny as well those are my marching orders and we should take them very very seriously so what are the means of that how do we do it what does it look like for us right now like for the rest of this day and even into this week and the week beyond what are we supposed to do about it Well, did you know that of the world's 8 billion people, roughly 42% either haven't heard about Jesus and his first coming at all 
or they've heard of it, but in only very shallow or inaccurate terms. 3.4 billion out of 8 billion have either a very, very inaccurate view of Jesus or haven't heard at all. That is a huge group of people. 3.4 billion human beings. Some cities and villages have absolutely no representation of the body of Christ. Self-proclaimed atheist Penn Fraser Gillette of the eccentric magical team Penn and Teller. Haven't heard from them recently. I don't know if they're, if they're still alive or not. But they used to be really popular. Penn and Teller. Kind of a magic team. He said he has no respect for Christians who do not share their faith. But wait a minute. Penn is a, or, uh, yeah, Penn is a um, militant atheist. He hates the idea of theism, that God exists. And he works actively to convince people that there is no God. But yet he made that statement. He made that statement publicly. Penn shared a powerful monologue about a polite and kind businessman who once handed him a Gideon Bible. He said this. He was touched by the man's gesture. And then he goes on to say, if you believe, if you actually believe that there is a heaven and a hell and you think it's not worth telling someone about it, how much do you have to hate him to not evangelize him? Makes perfect sense. Uh, Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Penn is absolutely nailed it. Someone coming from the other side, totally different perspective. Wow, talk about a motivation for us to get in gear and communicate somehow the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, how we can be reconnected back to God, have our sins forgiven, have the righteousness that we crave, and so many other graces that we desperately need. That's why we follow after him, because we're so needy, and we're trying to meet our needs in all these different places, all these different things, and none of them really satisfies. That's why that song that we sang before I came up here is so powerful, because he's truly the one that satisfies us. And in him, we should find our fulfillment. Someone came up with a classical definition of evangelism. He said, evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I like that. You know, hey, I'm hungry. Uh, I found some bread. Uh, I'll let you know where it is so you can be full too. Thank you. That's really all it is. Telling people about good news. You don't have to tell them about bad news. Or maybe you could start with a little bad news, as pre-evangelism is necessary. God's Word tells us that they've, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the news gets even worse because if you stay in that status, the wages of sin, the result of being in sin or being apart from God, is death, which is eternal separation from the source of all light and life and love. Being eternally separated that's really really bad news but then the gospel is the good news that's what evangelion means good news and so 
The good news is that Jesus did something about it. He didn't just leave us there. He did something about it. And Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. We were not lovable, yet he still chose to love us anyway. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our stead. He died instead of us. He took on the weight of that sin so that we would not have to suffer the results of it, the wages of it. And then how do I apprehend it? How do I get it? And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is brilliant on several accounts, but I love it because of just a few words. It, it doesn't just tell us how we can be saved, how we can be forgiven. It also reminds us how we're not saved. So if you're talking to people from more sacramental religions or faiths or denominations. This is a good verse to use because you could say all day, it's only by faith, it's only by faith, it's only by faith. Oh, yeah, yeah, I agree with that, I agree with that. The Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that too. And then like five minutes later, they'll say, yeah, and plus you've got to do all these other things. And some other denominations do the same thing. They just use different terms. But Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace, which is a total free gift. That's, that's a gift. The word charis, it means a gift, unmerited favor, that you have been saved through the means of faith. So it's not by works. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So human pride is shattered. Can't even contribute one iota, one percent to your salvation, to your reconnection. It's all by a total free gift, and you can only do it by an anti-work, the opposite of a work, which is Dependence. And so the word uh, pistis, which is faith, it means three aspects, has three movements in it. I believe, I understand something and believe it to be true. I believe it applies to me and I'm going to trust in it. And so therefore, I do that. I hear the gospel. I believe it applies to me. It's not just some theoretical idea for other people. It is for me. I need it. And so therefore, I'm going to sit in the chair. I'm going to trust in it. I'm going to depend upon it and it alone for my forgiveness, for my reconciliation, for the righteousness that I desperately need. And so that's the gospel. That's the content of the message that we must share. Those ideas, sin, substitution, and saving faith. Sin, substitution, saving faith. Let's say that together. Sin, substitution, saving faith. Let's do it again. Sin, substitution, saving faith. That's the message. That's the backbone of the essential message of the gospel. But then you might be saying, and I know what you're thinking now, yeah, but it's so awkward. I, 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 I'll be gladly supportive of other people doing this. I'll even pray about it. I'm committing to do that. But it's, this just isn't for me. It's not my style. It's, uh, I'll do other things. I'll, I'll even do nursery as long as I don't have to do evangelism. Please, Pastor John, don't force me to do this. Don't make me feel guilty. But here's some good news for all of you who are wiggling right now. There's different ways to do it. There's at least six different ways. There's proclamational evangelism, which some of you I think are really good at, actually. I've heard some of you teach as I walk by Calibrate, you know. And this, that's right in your zone. Man, I'll go on a street corner and I'll preach. Or I'll go knock on doors and I'll preach to the people and force my way in, you know. But 
Most of us aren't there, but Peter did it in Acts chapter 2. He encouraged the listeners to repent about Jesus. Change your mind about who Jesus is. The man, the God-man who you just crucified and who just rose from the dead and who just ascended. Well, change your mind about him and receive him because he's your savior and you need to trust in him. There's the intellectual as well. Paul in Athens and Mars Hill speaking to a group of intellectuals, people who were of different philosophies, the Epicureans and other schools of philosophy. They would sit all day and contemplate, contemplate their navels and discuss philosophy. You know, those guys. This is where the evidences work in, evidences from philosophy or from creation, whatever it might be. This is where you talk intellectual stuff. Some of you are really good at that, too. Some of you are like, no way, not for me. That's fine. We've got something for you. Testimonial. This is one for our day, for our age, and for our culture. It's probably one of the top two or three that's most effective today. This is why I love the evangelism styles, because some of them don't work as well as they used to, like proclamation in our country. For example, it's really hard to get people to go to a crusade. 50 years, 60 years ago in America, you could get people to go to a crusade. Today, it would be really hard to do that. You get a bunch of Christians in there, and you're having the holy huddle in the stadium. And there's like three non-Christians, all right? It doesn't work, but in Kenya, you can get thousands of people to a crusade in Nairobi, see? But other ones will be less effective there. And so testimonial is probably the one that's most effective in our day and age, in our culture, because it's all about your story, right? And people laud that. They esteem your story. Tell us about your life. And some of you have... Well, all of you have great testimonies. I've listened to a lot of them in the newcomers class along with the other elders. But some of you have testimonies. It's like, you know, and now I'm going to tell you about the prison years. Now I'm going to tell you about the drug years. But I came to Christ. And so they're a little bit more dramatic, I guess you could say. But nonetheless, all testimonies are phenomenal. And so the one in John chapter 9 is the blind man. So he went and told people, everybody who would listen, I was once blind, but now I see physically and spiritually. This is what he did for me. I was born blind, and now I can see and I know him. The other, a few weeks ago, I had just woken up, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought to myself, John, that's what I call myself because that's my name. John, what would you have been like if you didn't trust in Jesus as your Savior when you were 11 years old and then you didn't become a true disciple and active follower of Christ when you were around 21? What would you be like now? I thought to myself, Ooh, I would not be a very good person. I would be like some of the other men in my family, some of the other men in my family, I think, probably. And I coined it, not your... That's my, not my testimony, but thinking about what you would be like if you didn't trust in Jesus as your Savior, I call that your anti-testimony. It's something I thought about the other day. And I, I thought, wow, we all want to hear our testimonies. I sure don't want to tell you my anti-testimony, but I think I know what it would be like. Interpersonal. Jesus goes to Matthew's house in Luke chapter 5, and he talks to people who are kind of the down-and-out ones. 
tax collectors. Everybody hated the tax collectors. They were the stooges of the Roman government. They hated them, the prostitutes. Jesus would talk to them interpersonally, one-on-one, taking lots of time, not dumping the whole load on them at one time, but rather communicating some elements of the gospel in a sensitive and personal conversation. Invitational. The Samaritan woman didn't preach the gospel herself, but she told people about Jesus. To go and talk to Jesus, I invite you. You introverts can do this. You don't have to talk about the gospel yourself, but you can bring them to other people who will tell them about the gospel. Service. This is another popular one as well in our culture as well. Doing good works for people, but not just doing the good works. Dorcas made clothes for poor people. It doesn't say it explicitly in Acts chapter 9, but it's implied that when she did that, when she made clothes for poor people, she didn't just give them clothes and kept her mouth shut. She would communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so she did not live her life to make clothes for poor people. She lived her life to make clothes for poor people so that way she could share the gospel with them. Two totally different visions, two totally different life stories. So those are six styles of evangelism. But then you say, further objection would be, yeah, but it's still awkward talking to people about spiritual things. It, it's just not for me. So um, I like the evangelism styles, and maybe I can invite somebody, but there's no way in the world that I'm ever going to actually have a conversation like that myself. How do I transition from talking about mundane things of life to talking about sensitive and important things like one's spiritual life and one's spiritual destiny. Well, use the formula. Talk about family at first. So you're not just talking about sports and the weather, but you're talking about their family and their family of origin or about their occupation or about their religion. I play tennis with a lot of guys who are Hindu or into New Age or non-believers or in a sacramental religion, it's the majority of people that I interact with during the week have a lot of non-Christian friends. And let them be authentic friends. You're not just there with an agenda. That you really enjoy them, and they enjoy you as well. And I have to say, all of my non-Christian friends, I thoroughly get a kick out of them. That's why I'm their friend. And But yet, at the same time, I want to communicate the gospel to them as well. So we talk about one's religion as kind of a stair step to talk about the true faith and then ultimately give them the message, but then use love always. Don't use language of condemnation. Don't point your finger in their face. Don't give them 20 books to read. Listen to them. You ask questions, and hopefully they ask questions as well. Let it be a two-way conversation. And so use love Always, but devise, devise some sort of strategy or plan to reach other people in your world. There was a woman named Eva Hart. And she remembers the night of April 16th, 1912, vividly. That was the night that the Titanic plunged 12,000 feet to the Atlantic floor some two hours and 40 minutes after the iceberg tore a 300-foot gash in her starboard side, Eva said, 
I saw all the horror of its sinking, and I heard, even more dreadful, the cries of the drowning people. Although 20 lifeboats and and rafts were launched, too few, and many only partly filled, most of the passengers ended up struggling in the icy waters while those in the boats waited a safe distance away. Lifeboat number 14, it rode back to the scene after the unsinkable ship slipped from sight at 2.20 a.m. Lifeboat number 14 alone, of all the 20 small vessels, chased cries in the darkness, seeking and saving a precious few. Incredibly, no other boat joined it. Some were Some, a few, were already overloaded, but in virtually every other boat, those already saved rowed their half-filled boats aimlessly in the night, listening to the cries of the lost. Each feared a crush of unknown swimmers, uh, that they would cling to their boat, eventually swamping it, so they stayed a safe distance away. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. And he commissioned us to do the same thing. But you and I face a very large obstacle. It's not the fear of being swamped, but it's the fear of fear itself. While people drown in the treacherous waters around us, we are tempted to just stay dry and safe and make certain that No one rocks our boat. Yeah, think about this. That the boat is actually not ours. And our safety came only at the expense of the one who overcame fear with love and then did save us. There's something. There's something that every person who's a believer in Jesus Christ in this room and also watching through live streaming or watching a week or two later, there's something that every person in this room can do that they're currently not doing, including myself. I need to ratchet it up. I need to pray more. I need to talk more. I need to build more relationships. I need to get more of the, those other lifeboats in active service to save the lost and the dying, people who need to know. I've got to do something about that. I've got to do something about that 3.4 billion people. It should be a lot less than that by now. We've got to pray. We've got to talk. We've got to build relationships. We've got to overcome our fears and our awkwardness. We've got to get over ourselves. Get beyond it. Because the stakes are so high. I know you know that. And I trust that you'll do something about it too. Join me in that. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are and who you're making us into being. I pray that we... We all, together, as a group, uh, simultaneously just ratcheted up our sanctification a bit here and shifted some priorities around, shifted our style of relating toward other people a bit, to those who are lost in our lives, to challenge them, to truly, authentically love them. It's the most loving thing we could do for our friends, our family who don't know you yet, to communicate the gospel, to begin that process, to pray for them. 
Pray for a, a gentle opening so that way we can tell them about this really good news that changed our lives. I thank you for the variability of options for us and the styles of evangelism and how we can approach people. Thank you for that. Thank you for telling us that. And that frees us up and makes it slightly less awkward. I pray, Father, that we can talk to people about sensitive and important things, the most urgent and important thing that we can talk to about other people. I pray that we would communicate the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.